Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today we're talking about how we don't fall apart. Yeah, we are. So, you know, I think it's just important to recognize, and I think many of our listeners probably can identify with the idea and the feeling that it sometimes feels feels like the world is falling apart in a lot of ways, either personally or in terms of the broader environment. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how, why it might feel that way. But we're going to talk about other stuff, too. Yeah, so this... This is really it. The working title for this was about institutions. Yeah. And it's kind of like a leprosy that we have when institutions start to fall apart. You know, poor guys with leprosies, you know, lose their fingers and stuff just walking around. And and our country's kind of been shedding pieces, important pieces of our body as we walk around. Sure, sure. And at least in terms of trust in those institutions. And so we're going to talk about what institutions are and why they matter. We're going to also talk about how we can all strengthen human institutions and uh, hopefully move forward with some hope. Uh, So why don't we start with that first part, which is, you know, why it might feel like the world is falling apart. And this might be an obvious question to some of you, but I think there's kind of another layer that is really important to recognize that has to do with this idea of institutions. So uh, what are a few reasons why it feels like it's falling apart right now, Chris? Well, you know, when things are going good, it's easy to ignore. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're driving your car down, we were talking about your brothers. He's got one of those awesome Jeep trucks, right? Yeah. You know, when when a Jeep is going awesome, Jeeps are awesome. But <laughs> Jeeps fall apart. Anybody that's a Jeep, you gotta love working on cars to own a Jeep, right? So, but you know, you're driving along every day, commuting in your commuter to work and and everything's great. Then one day you feel something a little odd. Mm-hmm. And then you generally, you hear some squeaky brakes. There's a vibration in the front or something. You go to the mechanic to get it checked out, right? Because you can't deal with that stress. Well, if you don't have the money, well, yeah. you just kind of pray and get to work the next day. Well, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so that's how we kind of were, you know, for a long time in our country, by and large, despite what the, you know, talking heads on TV would let you believe. Most people are like, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, political engagement's low because things are going good. But we had COVID. Right. Partisan divisions. You know, the social media cesspool got even worse under Donald Trump because there was always something to talk about. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, well, and that, and that social media cesspool, I think, is one that that really has been problematic for a lot of people um, because it, it has elevated the voice of, of certain parties that, that really divide us. Right. And on, on various topics in various ways, of course. And, you know, before you really couldn't have a platform for spouting off to a lot of people, unless you had some intellectual or other, other types of gravitas, but now anybody can take to Twitter or, or Facebook or, whatever the newest thing is out there for the youngsters uh, and voice their opinion. And, and there's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it does create in some ways this cesspool and, and some of these echo chambers, right? Some of these algorithms in our social media that deliberately make it more, um, I guess, desirable. If you want attention, right, in social media, 
you say things that are uh, polarizing. You say things that are polemic, that, that really kind of are arguing some sort of point. And that's the stuff that gets ratcheted up. You know, it gets the likes, it gets the dislikes, it gets the the whatever, the comments. And um, then, you know, the algorithms then suggest other content or start putting other stuff in your feed that is similar. And then you start just kind of building upon that. So yeah, there's a cesspool out there that, that I think can contribute to this idea that the world is falling apart. And it probably is reflecting it or is making you feel that way, you know, more than it actually is falling apart, right? Yeah, everybody wants to say, well, the Affordable Care Act is coming in and an existential crisis to health care, as you know it, and Mima's going to die and Ocasio-Cortez is going to kill her with a knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or remember like, the versus, one with Paul, that has Paul Ryan? Way... Hey, remember the, the, the ad with, with former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan when he's like pushing a, an old lady off a cliff in a wheelchair? Oh, my God. Right. I mean, yeah. that people want to watch. They're like, yeah, yeah, oh, my God. And they're alert, alert. They're alert neurons start going. That's not a real medical term, but they're alert <laughs> neurons go, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Versus, and now for a discussion of the actuarials of healthcare. Affordability <laughs> and existential morality in revolves to how we live our lives. Like nobody engages in that. If it's longer than a tweet, they don't read it. We know from the data that people, most people just click share. They don't even read the articles. And also that people that get a lot of their information from social media feel more informed, but actually don't know what's going on. Under oh, that. yeah. But, I mean, there is something worse than a lack of knowledge, and that's the illusion of knowledge. You know, it's great to know that you don't know. It's it's much worse to think, you know, when you actually don't. Uh, I think that's a great point. And, you know, what this does, uh, I think COVID plus this partisan division, plus uh, the social media cesspool and our perhaps our distrust of news and not knowing what to trust. This shatters or otherwise impedes, disrupts, you know, our sense of, of what what is real and our sense of stability. And I think what's even worse or goes along with this is our sense of trust in each other. Uh, and this is very problematic and, and it can contribute to our overall angst about the world. Yeah. And, and once trust starts to fall, right, everything goes crazy. If you had maybe somebody in your network. Now, this is a problem. This is a network because we start distrusting news sources and stuff rather than having uh, media literacy or social media literacy or these mm -hmm. kinds of um, even how to conduct a debate or dialectic conversation. And if you guys don't know what dialectic is, you need to go Google it. We'll probably do a show on it at some point. But the, the, when, tr when you have somebody in your network, Ben, if I said, hey, I saw your wife making out with some guy in the parking lot at your local grocery store, like, you probably wouldn't believe it, but that'd start to gnaw at you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just right? a little. <laughs> right, because, right, we've been friends for a long time. And it, and you'd be like, wait, my wife is amazing, impeccable. And it would not. And so, okay, well, one day she's a little bit late from a faculty meeting. Mm. And bit by bit, death by a thousand <laughs> cuts, trust is eroded. But yeah. think about the media landscape. Think about, I never see, it's like, you know what? I trust most people, so let's go talk to that Democrat over there. Or I think, you know, most most people are pretty good people and want a good society to live in. I trust that conservative over there. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not. And we've got this death by, and trust starts to erode. And when trust erodes, 
it gets to a point to where no matter what your wife said about where she was, or you're like, <laughs> you can't ask me where I am during December. It's Christmas shopping season, right. right? It doesn't matter what they say. You can't believe anything. And you're on, you're in a um, quicksand, yeah. right? And you're just sinking no matter what you do. The more you move, the more you sink. Yeah. Well, and trust in each other, either in an interpersonal relationship, a romantic relationship, whatever, or business relationship and a group, a team. It's really hard to get along without it. You have to have trust in order for you to have any kind of, uh, you know, speed of doing things, right? It, it just, you have to be much more cautious in an in a, in a, in a, a environment in which there's low trust. Uh, it, it's really essential for, for any kind of transaction, right? If you're doing some sort of, like if you and I, for example, and this is, this is very real. Like if you and I were doing a business deal, right? If we're, and we do this because we, we we're business partners and, and we do our consulting work. Like those are very easy for us because we trust each other. Because I, I know that you're not looking for ways to exploit me and I'm not looking for way, and you know that I'm not looking for ways to exploit you. So because of that, we're able to do stuff pretty easily. We don't have to formalize everything. We don't have to, you know, write everything down. But when you have low trust, then you have to start doing that stuff. So it really slows down the wheels of commerce and interaction and everything else. Um, so trust really does matter. Yeah. And think about transactions. The first thing you trust is that the dollar's good, mm -hmm. right? You know, we have we have trust that this this bill is okay tender for public and private transactions, right? Right. So, you know, without that trust, you know, I, I pass you a, case, a suitcase full of fake $100 bills. And I'm like, hey, Ben, here's your part. And you go <laughs> go down and the bank won't deposit him. Like, all of a sudden, you got to, like, put the marker on my hundies, right? Yeah. Or whatever. And, and, and by the way, just for our listeners to know, that is how we sh how we share money, just with suitcases of Suitcases cash. of money. Yeah, just kind of so if you see Ben carrying a suitcase, <laughs> get him. No way. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and it just makes life easier. Life is easier it get, when we have a, this sense of security and stability when we trust each other and we can actually get things done. Um, and, and, you know, we're not fearful for being exploited or otherwise harmed, either psychologically, emotionally, physically, whatever. Uh, and uh, I think this contributes to this idea of, you know, how the world is kind of falling apart when we start to distrust each other. Right. And so I think about some of the organizations we've done turnarounds and stuff in that have toxic cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, we do work with toxic cultures and um, a common refrain here or a piece in toxic cultures is lack of trust. Yep. And I'm thinking about one conversation I had with an executive where, you know, they said, well, I just don't trust anybody on this team. <laughs> and I said, well, what? And this was at the C level, you know, the executive team. And there's a variety of reasons why. Anyway, we won't go into those details. So I said, hey, well, what would the team have to do to earn your trust? Because the first thing you got to establish is trust. And one of the ways you do that is just by executing and being true to your word. Yep. But sometimes we get stuck in this case. I said, well, what? You don't trust anybody. Well, what would they have to do to earn your trust? I don't know. I can't think of anything. Wow. What? And, and so I said, well, that, that is a jail of your own making. And Ben, you reminded me of a good poem. Yeah. What, what, it was an Andrew Blake poem, right? William Blake. Yes, yeah, so there's a William old, Blake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. William Blake um, wrote a poem called London, and uh, I'll post a link in the show notes to a little blog post I wrote a couple years ago um, you, talking about that poem. It's a short poem, 
and it has to do with uh, you know various uh, problematic things that were going on uh, in in uh, Great Britain at the time. And um, you know, one piece of that that he talks about in this short poem is he, he makes reference to the mind forged manacles, right? These these constraints that we create in our minds, these jails of our own making. Um, and, you know, I think we very frequently can kind of create these, these mental prisons. Um, we have to, you know, be the change we want to see in the world. Um, we have to realize that we can have agency, right? That's why we're talking about in this episode how we don't fall apart, right? Because we will talk about things that we can do to encourage strength in our institutions, strength in, our, in the trust that we have with each other. Uh, and so, you know, beware of the mind-forged manacles, right? Is this something that's just in your own head, or is it something that you actually have evidence for? Because let's face it, there are times when people do take advantage of you. Um, but the key is to look at it and say, hey, do I have evidence that this is actually what's going on? Or is, am I just kind of jumping to conclusions about what's going on? Yeah, the first thing we've got to do is establish trust. And I know we normally save our recommendations at the end. But the first way you establish trust is being trustworthy yourself. And then the other thing is offering what we use all the time. It's called a collaborative alliance. Hey, listen, I don't really trust you a whole lot right, right now, but let's start doing small things together that we can build trust with, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, trust is a first, first thing. So no one, let's talk about hate groups briefly. <laughs> I know, what a non sequitur, but no one, <laughs> likes to be said to be part of a hate group. You know, even- At least even most when, people. <laughs> even when they're doing like racism research, they'll say, hey, are you a racist? Oh no, I'm not a racist. But then they'll ask questions like, well, would you be okay with your kid marrying somebody of another race? No. And you're like, well, okay. <laughs> you know? So because nobody wants to be labeled that because we view that as a bad thing and rightfully so. But when you despise a view without understanding it or at, without having a real cause, you kind of get into that realm of hate. You mm -hmm. know, the, the KKK and other hate groups despise people because of the color of the skin, which is obtuse. Mm -hmm. It is just so obtuse. And, and so this, we become that way because there's no reason really other than just pure hate. But when we don't understand another side, another group, another idea, or worse, when we don't even hate them for what they actually believe. So Ben says, you know, I hate tomatoes. And I go out on the public media. I'm like, can you believe Ben hates all red fruit? Tomatoes <laughs> are fruits for the uninformed. <laughs> I, I, and Ben's like, wait a minute, that's not what I said at all. And I'm out there. I, a straw man argument is setting up an effigy of what somebody thinks and then beating the fire out of that effigy rather than really describing what somebody believes and you shouldn't beat the fire out of it you should say you don't agree this becomes like a low level of hate that builds up in society and it's you know exponentially compounded by social media and, and network effects yeah and, and you know i think another piece of that whole idea is that sometimes people actually frequently people will despise an idea simply based on the group membership of the person who said it, right? So for example, 
you know, I think there are there. Are, let's say, you know, something that you know, pick your politician, something Trump said, something Obama said, they will, you know, because that person said it, they will say, you know, depending on their belief about that person, they'll be like, oh, totally wrong. Right. Hate it. Um, but you could, you know, switch them. Right. For example, I think there are there are things that, for example, that Ronald Reagan said about immigration and, and you know, saying positive things about having immigrants come to our country. Right. And I think you could probably put that quote up on certain forums and probably get a lot of conservative people who say, oh, it's the worst thing ever. Right. Who said that? Um, well, it was it was actually Ronald Reagan. Right. So, right. so they've done studies on this, Ben, where they just yeah. switch which party said it yep. and the approval. And so this is a us them team. And I see this all the time where they use the term conservatives with Republicans interchangeably. Yeah, or, right. or liberals with Democrats. Yeah, those right, are because different the conservatism things. is an actual political philosophy. Uh, Republicans are people who vote for people with the R in front of their names. <laughs> and but wait, how many D, how many Democrats can you vote for and still be a Republican? Maybe you really like a county commissioner that happens to be a Democrat. I mean, you know, these kinds no. of things. They or I do deal with this one. I live in a pretty liberal town, Park City, Utah, and they'll say, "Look at the Republicans." I'm like, "Which Republicans are we talking about? Are we talking about the neoconservatives? Are we talking about the fiscal conservatives? Are we talking about the paleo conservatives? You know, they can't even name the factions the within the republic, and paleo. yet they're painting. Yeah, I know these are not just meat eating <laughs> conservatives. Actually, if you don't know what a paleo conservative is, Google it. We won't dive into that. The point is is parties are made up of different groups of people. They're not a monolith. Right. People are, Ben, How you, you go to the Catholic church. How many people in your church have the exact view of Catholic doctrine that everybody else does? Yeah, I'd say there's there's wide ranges on that, right? And, and you could even take that um, a step further. Sometimes, you, you know, people have talked about, well, you take it back to politics. They say the Catholic vote. That now that's a weird thing. Oh man. Because that I mean <laughs> that I mean that basically, I mean, especially you have I mean it's the largest Christian denomination in the world. So um it's a lot of people and uh it's just as it's a microcosm of the rest of society, really. Um so all right, let's get back on track here. We're talking the, about the point the point is when you paint everybody by the same thing and don't yep. take people at their individual views. That is a kind of intellectual dishonesty at best and a bit of hate at worst because you're painting. You stop seeing people as individuals, as humans on this planet and as a collective group, and often you're not even judging correctly. Right. And so this contributes to this idea and this feeling about you know why it feels like the world is kind of falling apart right now. And so that brings us to uh, this idea of institutions. And it's helpful, I think, to, for us to unpack this issue to talk about what institutions are and why they matter. Now, most of the time or many times uh, people kind of use the word institution synonymously or interchangeably with organization. And th it's not exactly the same thing, um, you know, especially if you delve into the uh, the scholarly side of this stuff, which we won't really do too much here today. But um, institutions are have to do with those those really deep um, norms, the rules of the game, how things get done in 
the economic or political spheres, our social interactions. Um, and we can also think of formal institutions being like, you know, oftentimes public organizations that are institutions because of their taken for grantedness. All right. So I just threw a lot of ideas out there. Let, let's let's unpack this a little bit more. Help me out. Yeah, well, one of the first institutions I think about have to do with the rules of the game, how mm -hmm. we live. And this could be, right, we've got formal and informal one. An informal institution, if you will, would be don't cut in line. Yeah, there you go. Right? If That's you're standing, at, you know, you're at LaGuardia or if you're you're at, at the grocery store and it's backed up and everybody's six foot socially distanced or we see this. The liquor store line is like way out the line and around the block, you know, <laughs> during the time of COVID. And and somebody wants to cut because they need to get their whiskey sour made early. Oh, no. Hey, buddy, <laughs> get the back of line. You know, people, people will be, like, oh, you know, but sometimes people just be quiet. But you can see the look of, you know, revulsion and disgust. You know, oh, my. Because these are institutions. These are rules of the road. Now, laws. Right. We have to have laws. You know, everybody on every road can't go. You definitely can't have choose your own speed limit at school let out time in front of an elementary. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that you just can't and have the kind of world you want to live in. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, and so some of our institutions in terms of our patterns of behavior that we just take for granted um, actually are codified in law. Um, so, you know, uh, maybe it started kind of as an institution or just a way of doing things, for example, for us to drive on the right side of the road here in the United States and many other countries. Uh, and that became a law, right? Uh, it became something that you, you have to do. Uh, so there's, there's certainly a, these are human devised. Um, we come up with them as humans. They help us get along with each other. There is certainly a, a cultural component, you know? So if you go to other cultures, uh, some institutions that we have here might not, you'll, you'll quickly learn, aren't quite as universal. Um, you know, one that I just kind of thought of as we were prepping for this episode is, you know, in the United States, at least, and in many other developed countries, the idea of nepotism, giving jobs or favors in an organization to your relatives is kind of frowned on, right? <laughs> Most organizations have policies against this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not something that we, we have to handle that with care. If you are employing somebody from your family in an organization elsewhere, that may be just be like, Hey, that's the way it goes. You know, if this is such a clash of norms that if you're doing business overseas, we have laws that prevent American companies from engaging in bribing. Right. And, and it's, but what do you mean? This cult, this country X, Y, or Z or whatever has everybody else that does business with them gets to bribe the officials so they can get the contract or do the deals. Well, we decided this is a part of our soft diplomacy and part of our cultural values and institutions here as the United States that we penalize companies, U.S. companies that engage in this bribing behavior because we think bribery undermines trust and therefore undermines democracy in the world. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's a, that's a good point. Right. So institutions have this aspect of being taken for granted. We don't oftentimes think about them. Right. I think most of our listeners probably haven't really considered that standing in line is an institution that we have or, you know, taking turns <laughs> is kind of an institution in either play or other types of activity. Right. Um, 
And we really don't think about them unless they're threatened or if we're really being careful and deliberate here. Now, we oftentimes also talk about institutions within the context of public organizations. And you know, some of our organizations that we have, for example, in the United States, have become institutions because we do take them for granted. They've been around for a long time. They do certain things in the background that we just kind of take for granted and are, we're maybe kind of aware of them, but they just kind of happen. Um, so, you know, for example, the idea of Congress, right, that, that, that is an institution that we have in the United States, that, they, that we elect these people and they get things done because they are supposed to represent us and they, they vote on certain matters so we don't have to vote on every single little thing that comes across the, the public sphere. Uh, we also have, you know, the the various public services that we have are kind of institutions. Um, could be the, the Department of Motor Vehicles, or as we call them in Ohio, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, right? Oftentimes, <laughs> you know, here's the thing though: the the BMV is all, as we call it in the, in Ohio, is oftentimes it's just a punching bag for bureaucracy, and it's, oh, it's like you know going to the BMV and having to wait for your driver's license. Uh, the last time I, last couple times I went to go get something done with my driver's license or with a vehicle. It was like super smooth and awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, we we got we had uh, <laughs> what was it John Ariola and freaking Nashville that revamped and brought a bunch of automation in and and it's mm. awesome. Yeah, you know, there's this idea. Here's the thing, guys: public institutions have the same in- challenges that private ones do for the most part. They yeah. get to hire from the same group of numbskulls that anybody else does. Nobody wants the government employees to be overly paid. Ben and I are both in the military. You'll mm-hmm. see, depending on where we are in the economic cycle, it's like, why would you ever join the military? They don't pay anything. And then when the economy <laughs> goes down, down, everybody's like, oh my gosh, look at these overpaid military members <laughs> with their cushy benefits. And I mean, but that, no matter what you pay somebody, you got to pay them close to industry amount and somebody's going to complain about it. But you know, efficiencies, inefficiencies. We go into private companies all the time that are grossly inefficient. And it, this just isn't one place. But this is an example, a straw man. Government is bloated, inefficient, and horrible is actually not always the case. Mm-hmm. Right? And 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 that is a bit of like bad behavior where, oh, well, all government's bad. And it's like, okay, show me exactly where it's bad. Right. So, you know, a couple other examples of organizations or groups of organizations that we would probably consider it to be institutions here in, in the United States, at least, are the military. You know, you mentioned, yep. um, you know, other types of law enforcement, maybe um, the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, police systems and organizations, uh, court systems, like the way that that happens. Yeah, our civil uh, procedures, which have mm-hmm. been refined and passed on for many, 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 many generations. Right, right. Um, you, you mentioned speed limits. Uh, when we were prepping for this episode, we talked about unions, right? Unions are kind of an institution in certain pockets of industry. Universities are institutions that, you know, I think uh, even those are being somewhat threatened and challenged as people have noticed the rising costs of tuition and you know, what is the role of the university? Is it to all they create... do is brainwash children to be liberals? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't think so, but yeah. So the data um, does not support that by the no, way. It doesn't. And, uh, you know, or, or are we, do universities exist just to, um, you know, 
create job pro or you know people who can go right into jobs or is it to create people who can think right there are just different types of philosophies there so these are examples of of public organizations or large sets of organizations that we consider institutions we take it for granted we have these certain ideas about them um but you know informal institutions are also very important these are those societal norms this is the the cutting in line thing you know this idea of freedom of speech that you know the rule of law that that law actually matters you know that 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 is an institution that's a human created cultural construct right um because you can have all the laws you want in a country but if people don't follow them because they don't believe in them <laughs> then they don't really you know do anything yeah like don't eat funyuns at your desk or microwave <laughs> fish in the in the employee <laughs> dining hall you know right <laughs> yeah um, but, but these these informal institutions are important mm -hmm. because so here here's some of the things so you know people talk about political hardball and that that may be okay then technically you can't hold people to it but Ben, what if, what if I signed a contract with a company that obligated you to a whole bunch of stuff and put us in um, legal peril without talking to you? Yeah, I wouldn't be happy. Right. And and the other side of that, we could not write enough rules to cover every interaction that we would ever have. Oh, and so we point. have these informal institutions of good faith. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's like the jerk that says, ah, you didn't tell me that was a rule. That... You know, that's the equivalent of, you know, being in the back of the seat with your sibling on vacation. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Technically, you're not. But <laughs> you're all up in my grill, man. Like, stop. Right. right. And th this is this is why informal institutions are important. And it, with the last president that we had, we found like, man, can the president do that? Because yeah. he was driving a semi truck through norms. And, yeah. and and I don't know if it's good for the president to be constrained by every little thing he can or can't do being completely spelled out. Yeah, but that's that's well, why then, informals in, important. Well, what's interesting is it, it actually, you know, we can't make a rule about everything. And so, you know, I'm not an attorney, uh, but if you get into contracts, right. Right. In general, like every contract between people, between organizations has this implied duty of good faith and fair dealing, right? Um, that you're going to not do things that are going to, uh, you know, destroy or injure the right of the other party to receive whatever the contract is is bestowing upon them. And it's kind of this catch-all for, hey, you're you're gonna you're gonna do this right. That you're going to, uh, you know, play by the rules here. Uh, so you know, these institutions really matter. And when our institutions are threatened, when we feel like they don't, they don't, the rules of the game have shifted. Right. When we feel like that, that really contributes to this sense of insecurity, the sense of instability. And I think is a big part of the reason why it might feel like the world is falling apart right now, because our institutions are threatened. We've seen things, for example, in the United States, a riot at the Capitol building. Right. This, this which violates this idea in the Capitol building, yeah, in the valley, killing yeah, exactly. people. Right. So um, which we had a, a politician here in Utah said, well, well, that's just a. Trump gets a mulligan on this one. And Oof. I'm like, you don't get a mulligan on somebody dying, man. No. And yeah. and whether that comes out legally, the whole point is norms and, and stuff were violated, which destroys, what did we talk about first? Trust. And when there's not trust, 
we don't have a stable ground to build the kind of world people want to live in. That's now, right. I like to live in a house that has, a, you know, a temperature of, you know, somewhere between 65 and 68 degrees. Other people that live in my house have different views on that temperature, <laughs> right? And, but we don't pull out knives, guns, and hand grenades over the thermometer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. So these institutions really matter because they provide this framework for how we get along. And, you know, you brought up the example of, uh, you know, one of the earliest definitions of kind of a mandate for government institutions that they exist to help protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's part of kind of the, the ethos and the, the reasoning here in the United States, at least. Um, so we've talked about, you know, how, why it might feel like the world is falling apart right now and how institutions play a role in that because our trust in those institutions really matters to our sense of stability. Um, so I think that moves us now to maybe the conversation around how might we actually strengthen the human institutions around us and, uh, move forward with hope. But before we do that, you know, I think an important thing to note is like, okay, there's problems with institutions. Should we just get rid of them all? Yeah. I mean, that is so... <laughs> Anybody yes, that's lived in their house with children and the and the garbage just piles up and you're like, what? This is a toy from when they were like two. What's it, what's it doing here? Not only what is it still in my house, how was I able to step on it barefoot? I just want to get a grenade and blow this whole thing up. We're going to live in a van <laughs> down by the river, right? Like it is so deceptive to say it's not perfect or I'm unhappy. I want everything to burn down. And so let's just engage in that for a minute. Let's say you had a magic wand and all of it was gone. Mm -hmm. Well, now, now you got to start from scratch and it's going to stink. Yeah. And why is it going to stink? Because institutions just don't float up for funsies that that is a lie that is false mm -hmm. institutions grow up because there's a need for something you can't have everybody playing full court press to get their groceries across the scanner mm -hmm. right so we when you make a line yeah well and our you know i think it's important to note that okay are our institutions perfect of course they're not Right? No, they're made uh, of people. Gosh. They're made of people, and there are <laughs> issues with them. And the problem is when that when you have issues that are you know problematic with your institutions, then they can be very widespread and they can be taken for granted. You don't see them, so those do need to get addressed. Those types of issues. Uh, but burning down the house, I, I don't think that that's the right answer in terms of get rid of all institutions and start over. Right? We need to rethink everything. Um, not really. I mean, I think there's just a lot of improvement that can be done, uh, both in deep ways, but also in, around the fringes of of what's going on in our world. So, um, you know, these institutions exist for reasons. They oftentimes were set up to solve some sort of problem, and those problems still exist. So, I think having a deeper understanding is very important if you're trying to reform any kind of institution. And and I. I... If there's a listener out there that can think of a institution that's disappeared, and I'm not saying like the, you know, mm -hmm. ancient Sumerian pottery union or something, not, you know, a, a, may, a modern institution, I will say in the last thousand years, right, that's disappeared, please send us an email yeah. because institutions arise due to a need and those tend to be persistent social 
needs. Yeah. Well, I think especially if you're thinking about institutions that exist for good reasons, right? There are some institutions, and I just thought of one, in terms of these informal institutions, these patterns of behavior that um, you know existed for a while and now are just kind of looked at as like, really, we used to do that? And then what I'm thinking about is littering. So it used to be the case where littering, just throwing your trash out of the window of your car as you're going down the highway, was kind of like, meh, just kind of took it for granted. People just did that, apparently. Um, now, you and I are both of the age in which that that hasn't been a norm, and that is something that changed over time, where people were like, hey, we actually want to keep this country beautiful, and let's start, you know, not only not throwing stuff out the window, but let's adopt different sections of highway and, and keep things clean. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's an example of an institution changing. Yeah, well, informal institutions informal absolutely one. do change, and that's yeah. important because we we learn stuff, but the formal the the institutions that get codified will hmm. will and you know we could beam everybody to a new planet with nothing and eventually they'll develop some kind of something that's very similar to the institutions we have yeah and and every organization out there you leaders out there there are institutions within your organization different patterns and really deep routines that happen uh that oftentimes are for good reasons but some of them might not be, and you might want to examine those. But let's let's turn our attention now back to this idea of how we can strengthen those human institutions, how we can uh, not fall apart as uh, human civilization. Uh, and part of that, I think, has to do, a big part of that has to do with our institutions. Right. The first one is if you see somebody attacking institutions, you need to make sure that they're just, they don't get to just carte blanche poop on everything, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, what's wrong with that? Okay, well, let's work to fix that. But chaos happens when we just attack institutions writ large. Well, the DMV is a lie. The DMV is false. The, the persons running the well, DMV now, now, hold are on. bad. It, wor it worked really well out there in uh, the Northwest uh, when they decided they weren't going to have police in certain areas, right? Uh, well, we <laughs> we won't dive into that one, but... You know, the thing is, is as and people it's it's a fantasy, right? And and it it titillates this idea of unfettered stuff. But one of the first things we can do to strengthen institution is when you see somebody attacking institutions, make them be specific. Hey man, I just can't take you seriously unless you can be very specific about what is specifically wrong with this institution. Okay, this institution made a mistake. Was this a systemic thing? They always make this mistake or is this a one-off people thing? Okay, well, then we can have some correction and move on. You know, those kinds of things. Do not allow people to undermine the need for institutions. They allow us to organize as a society and we destroy those institutions. We destroy trust. And then you're living in, in chaotic carnage. That, yeah, you know, that's I mean, like, about. so for example, you know, you and I both know that the U.S. military is not perfect. Does oh, that mean man. you get rid of the whole military? No, it doesn't. I think it means that you be specific about those things that need to change and you continually work towards making it better. That it, that, and even that recognition and that type of um, approach towards, hey, let, let's continually try to improve things, I think is a sign of a healthy institution. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've seen all kinds of numbskullery in the military, but, you know, we don't have perfect people. Nobody does. Right. And, and we, but, that doesn't mean that we aren't freaking violent about improving things. We will mm -hmm. not accept this next year, or we will not accept this starting now. 
Um, one of the things that we have is a 60-day time to address extremism in our ranks because we found veterans and so, even some people that are currently in the National Guard at the Capitol riots, which is a complete no-go for the military. Yeah. And and so and it always has been a no-go, by the way. Like, yes, it always has. <laughs> it's not I, a new I've thing. put I've had soldiers I've served with that have been put out of the military for being in extremist organizations. And, you know, it's like mowing the lawn. That that stuff crops up because people are there and we deal it. But do I say, well, just disband all the military? No, any first world government needs one, you know? <laughs> so uh the so back to the what can you do? Make people focus on the improvement piece. And if they want to call for a dismantling, man, they have got a tall intellectual case they got to make. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, how your structures are in your organization, you know, everything from who reports to whom to your policies and procedures, all of those can become institutions. They can become taken for granted. Um, they need to be aligned with what you're trying to achieve. You know, you can wing it for a while as an organization or with certain aspects. Um, and that could even lead to some informal institutions. But I think it's important to be intentional about what's what's working, what's not, kind of going to your point about being very specific about what you're trying to do with your organization before you just try to wing it and try just trying stuff. Yeah, and so I'm thinking, you know, my agile people are out here. Oh, we're all self-organizing. We're all, you know, I've never seen them self-organize the cleaning of the bathrooms. They they always hire janitorial staff to come <laughs> keep the bathrooms clean and vacuum the carpet. Maybe if they're super, if you're at the phase where you're in your mom's garage starting the next Facebook, well, okay, well, your mom probably is doing that, honestly, if you know a lot of these software developers. But yeah. um, well, on the bathroom point, I have a funny, funny anecdote. So my, my brother, uh, my older brother, he was in, a fraternity in college and uh you know they had their own house and there were certain parts of that house that definitely were, were not um clean we'll say um probably <laughs> oh no I, where I, is I this that, going I would say that i'm most, so scared <laughs> i would say that most zoos were probably cleaner uh but my my brother especially as he became an upperclassman he would get all irate about it and uh he he would go around and he would say, this is why communism doesn't work. If it's no one's responsibility to keep this place clean, it's going to look like this, right? Um, you know, so uh, self-organization works to some degree, but you also have to have some structures in place. You you do need these things. They are helpful. Yeah, um, agile know, organizations have HR departments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, they have you know, legal departments too if they get really good, right? Sure, and if we had to boil down, and people have done this, you know, both theoretically and empirically, all the different things that you do as a leader you can really put you know a bunch of them into one bucket that we call uh initiating structure and then we can put a bunch of them into a bucket that we call consideration you know taking care of people making sure there's strong interpersonal relationships but that initiating structure piece that is important and either initiating the structure or fixing the structure uh, is one way in which we can strengthen our human institutions um, because if I can't trust what's going on in my organization, if I can't trust my boss to make good decisions, how does that influence? And this would be a hard thing to test, right? But, you know, I think it does have to do with how we start to see the world. And, you know, if I don't trust what's going on there, how am I going to trust anything that's going on? How do I trust any of the news I'm seeing? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you were scandalized by the Capitol riot and infiltrate the sedition and insurrection at the Capitol, and then you go back to your organization and don't have fair business practice, you're part of the problem, buddy. The mm. reason people, I think, right, I there's probably some research on this. I'll have to go check it out. But if you go into an organization are treated irresponsibly and not in good faith, if you deal with managers that are unscrupulous and favoritism and all of that stuff continually, and you see people stealing, cheating on contracts, you know, uh, you know, skimping on quality, a whole host of items, how how would you not think that the broader political and social institutions in our country and world, like the World Health Organization, gosh, I never thought I would see people try to throw rocks at the World Health Organization. Why would you think in any of those were different from the place where you work? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like start local, think global, right? You know, you got to have ethical organizations to create ethical people, ethical voters, ethical civic participants. It's, you know, it's a whole virtuous cycle that you can affect as leaders within your organizations. That's right. You know, there's a reason why when either uh, governmental or military or non-governmental organizations are trying to help another country get stronger. There's a reason why when they do that, they oftentimes look at institutions and they look at ways to make those institutions better. You know, we both served in Afghanistan. That's where we met. And, uh, you know, one of my jobs there, actually my main job was as an advisor to the Afghan National Police. And I was attempting uh, on a Every other day, I'd put on my my flak jacket and my helmet and uh, get all suited up and go outside somewhere in the outskirts of Kabul, Afghanistan, and talk to a couple uh, colonels or generals in the Afghan National Police to try to get them to do stuff. What we were mainly trying to get them to do was to institute programs and practices that would help that institution be stronger, that would help that institution be a be something that was trusted in the population. Now. <laughs> were we successful? I don't know. That's another, that's a topic for maybe a- You only a, had a, a like a year, more. Ben. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing we did, I think we did help in a few different ways, but uh, we won't get into that here. But, um, you know, when we were prepping for this episode, we were talking about this. And, you know, for example, if you go to the, the Catholic Relief Services website, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, they have a whole section on how to do in institutional strengthening, some things to look at, Right. If, if you're trying to make it another country stronger and have them be more functioning where, um, you know, people can get the services they need, they can trust government, they can trust each other. Well, there's a handful of things that you can do. You can look at things like, you know, having uh, good governance, having good strategy, dealing with money well, uh, having good HR, right? Monitoring and evaluation, all of these different aspects of how we come to interact with our institutions really do matter. Yeah, and because this is a system of system of systems, everything's interrelated, you know? So if you came into a country and just started convincing individuals one by one to live a life of integrity and trust and good faith, well, give them a couple months and they're going to set up institutions, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if there's already some institutions, like there was a police force in Afghanistan, well, you start with a campaign for the people as well as just going in and helping those institutions 
live ethical lives. One of the things that we have in business here in the United States and uh, um, in any country that does business is GAAP, generally accepted accounting practices. Mm. And one of those is at once you're a certain size, the person that receives the money should not be able to write the checks. Um, yeah. You get audited once a quarter so that if you say you've got 400 widgets of inventory on the shelf and that counts as wealth on your balance sheet, well, then, then you have somebody once a quarter go count. Hey, indeed, they're telling the truth. They certify your financial statements. And that is a strengthening function mm -hmm. because it wouldn't take very long before some jack wagon's going to start to cheat. And we see the cheaters all the time, the Enrons and those kinds of places that'll happen. Um, it's just like locks on the door. It keeps the honest people honest. Like these are some of these strengthening things that we can have. We should seek to strengthen our institutions. Yeah. We should look, look for those things. And I think you and I are willing to go out on the limb and say that, look, maybe you don't work in one of these public organizations or one of these things we consider an institution. You know, maybe you work in a small business. Maybe you work in somewhere in, in the private sector, and that's great. Uh, but guess what? You as a leader have the ability by instituting and maintaining and promoting healthy management practices, you have the ability to create trust in your organization by being a little bit predictable about the rules of the game. <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, so if people are all on the same page, that's going to increase people's trust in you as a leader. It's also going to increase their trust in the organization overall. And when we start to have that in our organizations, that contributes to a healthy society. So I think, you know, it's not a stretch to say, by being a good leader and a good manager, you're actually helping to, you know, make us a stronger society in so many ways. Right. And it's not that you lose individual autonomy over this. Like how we organize is a way to say, here's how we all get along together while preserving, at least my view, while preserving as much individual autonomy. So that thing was like, ha look at me. I'm running naked through the forest. Nobody can tell me what to do. You know, like that's, fun is it's that what you do is that what you do up in park city <laughs> no i don't <laughs> but the, the whole idea of those things where because we don't like to be told what to do we like to have as close to a hundred percent freedom as possible but we also need each other mm -hmm. without each other you know a baby left alone dies you know even if you could feed it because we and so there's certain sacrifices that we make to get along so institutions help group organizations and a platform. But another thing that institutions also do is preserve individual freedom as much as possible. And one of the ways you can do that is by solidifying the rules of the road. Hey guys, we're going to stand in line, but you can stand in line with whatever groceries you want to buy. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think there's so much room for improvement in every organization here. You know, I'm just thinking of one example, like what does it take to get promoted around here? You know, oftentimes you got to be the CEO's kid. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, my, like you see maybe, that kind of stuff. Right? Or it's yeah, like that, if you're a, if you kiss the rear of your manager, that mm. gets you there. It doesn't matter how good a work you do. Yeah. And I would say those are both examples of non-productive institutions. If that's if that actually is how you get ahead. Right. That's not good. Uh, but if you can actually clarify what it takes to get ahead, what what is good performance look like in this organization? Um, you start to unveil what used to be just a bunch of smoke and mirrors, right? You start to provide clarity and taking the, um, you know, the opaque nature of a lot of these decisions away, 
so that people can feel like they're playing a fair game. So at least they know the rules. You know, if I know the rules and I lose anyway, I'm going to be a little bit happier than if I didn't know the rules and I lost. You know, I'm at least going to know, okay, well, so the organization did not say, they said that I'm not a high potential now. Oh, that feels like that kind of hurts. But, oh, here are all the reasons why. Because they, they did this battery of valid and reliable assessments. And here are the skills that I need to develop. Here are the five things I need to do if I want to have a good chance of being considered a high potential. Wow. Yeah. Big difference there. Yeah. And the, and the reason our politicians can get away with some of the obtuse things that they do or some of our big corporations is because we've gotten to the this brutal rules only stuff. You know, Amazon withheld like $69 million of tips from their food delivery people. Good grief. And, and it was just, man, you're a huge. This is why people hate you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. This is why. But what? Well, you can't do anything to me because we're just following the rules of the road. There are ethical business leaders out there. Mm-hmm. And and there's this idea of social shame that we can bring on people, just like the line cutter. You know, that's Amazon in that instance was an equivalent of a line cutter. Um, we can bring to bear these norms that are just damning on bad behavior. Like you said, Ben, we can't write a law for every little piece. And that's why these informal institutions and norms are so, so flippin' important. Yeah. And, and I think there is a role for, a, a large role for, um, you know, good reporting and media when it comes to keeping organizations honest, right? Good business reporting. And, you know, social shame is something that I think most organizations want to avoid um, because there's a whole bunch of things you can do that are still within the bounds of the law that are probably not the greatest management practices, right? Uh, so, you know, I think keeping people honest that way is very important. Um, and some think people about- will scream cancel culture. You know, you know, let's Ben, let's say your wife weighs 400 pounds and I come over to your house for dinner. It's like, you pick it on her for today. I don't know <laughs> because, because she's the coolest person. If you ever met her, you'd never believe anything I said, but so she's 400 pounds or something. I'm like, hi, Ben. Good to meet you. Wow. Your wife's really fat. <laughs> Everybody, if that was in a social search, the look of scorn would be, and rightfully so. Deservedly so. Deservedly so. And and then I just say, oh, wait, I'm being canceled here. No. (laughs) Cancel culture. This is a problem. Culture changes. And things that were acceptable 50 years ago are not acceptable today. And that's a good thing. That doesn't mean you're, you're... canceled that just means people are talking about the kind of culture that they want to have yeah you know one thing that we can do to keep the world from falling apart is actually own this more and look out there and say what are the types of human interactions that i want more of i'm going to reinforce and encourage those you know if you don't like people cutting in line then guess what? Don't be you a know, line cutter. Don't be a line cutter. <laughs> um, and, in, you know, when you see people who are standing patiently in line, uh, you know, say something nice about it. Now, I don't think that's a widespread problem here. I'm, I'm being I'm exaggerating for illustrative purposes. But, you know, think about, for example, the the types of norms you really want to see out there. Um, have healthy conversations about them. 
If you're upset about what people are saying about certain institutions or ways in which people are interacting online, well, you know, you need to be the change you want to see here. Don't just be passive. Don't just ignore it all. I, I think um, reinforcing that it can be a way to strengthen the institutions that we have in terms of how we interact. Yeah. Or if somebody's in a committed monogamous relationship, well, do you just not go sleep around because, well, I made a promise at an altar? Or do you not? What's the more motivating? I don't sleep around because of the person I want to be. Mm -hmm. Right? I don't cheat in business because that's the kind of person I want to be. Now, it, you know, a lot we see these people, they get up to the C suite and they're like, well, how, what am I supposed to decide here? Yeah. And they, they have no moral compass because they've just kind of, monkey see monkey do what the people ahead of them had done and 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 you've got to guys gals non-binary pals as kenji lopez says anyway you've got to decide who you want to be and be that person and if you see somebody who's decided to just be a cutthroat um robber baron then yes feel free to shame that person because that's not the kind of society you want to Right, right. You know, another thing that we can all do to strengthen the institutions around us in terms of our patterns of interaction uh, and in terms of the, the broader uh, formal institutions with which we interact is to seek some understanding before we condemn other people's ideas or other things that are going on. Uh, I, I think this is just so important to pause, to realize that, hey, you know, I'm, I might be wrong. Maybe there's something to learn here. Uh, before just coming down on on whatever side you're you you that feels right to you. Yeah, I feel most people aren't even equipped for political conversations because they can't really delineate the nuance of their the opposite side of their political spectrum. Right, and and that just means you're not you're not equipped. You need to put on your asking questions hat and learning hat to before you go in there and destroy. Pers interpersonal relationships. There's there's people on in neighborhoods that don't talk to certain neighbors. Goodness, mm -hmm. Ben, we read we should post the LA Times article you sent. Somebody got <laughs> mad at somebody from the opposite political party for plowing the snow off their driveway. Oh, that well, it was nice, but he's still hard. Wait a minute here, guys. This is not the kind of society we should live in. But let's talk about compromise, right? All right. Yeah. Well, so you want to go back to, you know, the uh, I want it to be 64. My wife wants it to be 72 in the house, which isn't true. She's actually good with my temperature. I'll never divorce her. Gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> but but anyway, so we say, OK, we'll go to 68 degrees then. Yeah. Ben, you you brought up this great term that I yeah. don't think a lot of people know, which is satisficing. Right. What is satisficing? I, so. Well, satisficing has to do with kind of sacrificing the optimal outcome in, 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 the, in the interest of, of what's acceptable, right? And sometimes this is fine. It can be faster um, to say, all right, well, you know, you want it to be 72 degrees. I want it to be 64. Let's, let's just make it, uh, you know, 68 or whatever. Um, and that's, that can be okay. However, there are oftentimes outcomes, if you have two competing parties that are um, you have you have some outcomes that might be better than just kind of taking the easy route, right? Uh, this requires trust. I have to, you know, if we were going to really try to think about 
you know, a, a good way forward. Let's say you and I have a disagreement about something. Um, I have to have the the belief that you have my best interests in mind. And you have to have the belief that I have your best interests in mind in order for us to really collaborate. And if we have that trust and we have this openness to, hey, let, let's let's think creatively about what might be a win here for both of us, uh, that can be a higher form of problem solving. And I think that you know when we have stronger institutions, when we have stronger patterns of trust between people, we can do that and we can do it better. Um, you know, I, I, I think it goes back to a lot of the political debates that we see, where it's like our stance is this, the other side's stance is this. And there's just no movement. There's not even an attempt. And sometimes there's an, a, like some sort of forced compromise. When in reality, some of these issues really could be solved in much better and more creative ways. Um, I don't have necessarily a solution for how to do that every time in the political sphere, but it starts with trust and openness to multiple ideas. Yeah, two examples from when I went through the principle-based negotiation stuff that's run out of Harvard. Um, you know, Nancy and Cindy come in and they both need a lemon. There's only one lemon left. And so what do they do? The typical thing. All right, I'll cut it and you pick the half. Well, you know, one of the girls grates the lemon peel and puts it in a, a pie and then throws her lemon half, rest of the lemon away. And the other one, like, use the actual lemon for a tea or something. If they had really understood each other, they could have both had what they want with the same single lemon. Another one, it's like, right. okay, we, we have to split this pie. But I need this and I need that. Okay, I'll cut and you pick the half. Well, what what if we just made the pie bigger? You know, these mm. these are mental models, and these are really basic examples of mental models that take people out of a fixed sum solution and look broader. And that's that's what we need to do when we look at these social problems. And that's only happens well when it's built on trust. That's great. You know, another thing that we can do to strengthen the institution around us is to uh, look for those ones that are struggling, maybe in your local community, maybe in your state, elsewhere, and try to make them better. You know, um, one one very simple thing that I try to do in any organization that I take part in, be it as a volunteer or as a, in a position of authority, is I want to leave that organization stronger than and better than when I came in. I mean, it's a pretty simple thing, but doing that oftentimes requires you to stick your neck out, to try some things, to talk to other people. And ultimately, if you do it well, can result in strengthening your institutions. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to sit on the sidelines. It's easy to make the nasty comments in the Facebook group, uh, but it's, it's harder yet. I think more rewarding and more needed to actually do something. Yeah. And so it's funny. So when I'm engaged in some of these dialogues on social media and stuff, you know, I'll get accused of being a troll for insisting somebody have specific recommendations or be specific about the policy or function of that institution. You know, it's like, well, I, I just can't carte blanche say that it should all be blown up, buddy. Like, that's the actual troll behavior. Everything's bad. Everything horrible. Throw it all away. Mm -hmm. And and it's interesting because you don't see now people can be mad at a bad call by a referee. Sure. Yeah. But I don't see any football fans, at least, or any fans saying we should get rid of all referees. <laughs> right. Because we, we know like we know and we need to take that intuitive knowingness on this piece and expand it to society. So 
If something, if there's an institution that's behaving in a way, well, institutions can change their norms and what they do all the time. But somebody's got to throw their hat in the ring. So we know we want trust. We want good faith. We want to understand the other side. All the things we've talked about in here. Now you got to get out and do it. Wait, it's, yeah. not, it's not cool to just listen to this podcast and be like, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Have fun, guys. <laughs> right? Get, get in there and, and help. Right. And, you know, the, this last category of things that we'll mention in terms of how we can build stronger institutions goes back to some really basic things that are uh, right in front of a lot of us. And I'm, we're not going to claim that these are easy, but this falls under the category of teach your children well. Or teach the children well. The children, yes. Uh, any of them. You're, you're a scoutmaster. Yeah. You, you know a kid. Um, yeah. You see a kid that doesn't have a parent. You know, it, it children need this anyway. Keep going, Ben. No, that's that. I think it's a fantastic point, right? Because uh, our the children uh, learn not only from their parents, of course, they learn from their coaches, they learn from their scout leaders, they learn from all these people around them, and we as a society can build stronger institutions and build a a country and a community and organizations that we are proud of if we do a good job with the kids. And this is and, and we can't look away from this because right. I'll see people say this and I won't say which groups and which about the I'm not going to say the parties that they'll say, well, the problem with that is the degradation of the American family. Oh, well, OK, well, that ha is that that kid's fault that his family fell apart or they they don't know who mm -hmm. one or both of their actual parents are. No, because those kids are going to grow up and they're citizens. Yeah. So it's like, it, you know, and it really is a village raising the children. So we have children in need and, and we, it's, I think it's morally irresponsible to turn our back and say, it's 1-800, not my problem. Yeah. But not only not my problem, but now I'm going to criticize these kids that have no parents, no families, no supportive social structures or anything and, and say, well, it's their fault. They should have done it on their own. Yeah. You know, sometimes I reflect when I think about my own kids, it's like, how are they learning to do the right thing? You know, and there's only so much you can do as parents. Like you, you can do a lot. Uh, I think you can be a good role model. You can talk about things. You can introduce ideas. Um, you can help them, for example, choose good friends. Uh, but a lot of it also comes around due to, you know, what kinds of schools they're in and what kinds of activities are they in and how are they learning from them? Uh, you know, you brought up this idea of, uh, you know, teaching, teaching kids to act well in the world. I think being a good citizen. I mean, what does that mean in our society? Uh, we have many people out there who have no idea how the world actually works or how our society actually works or how your government, you know, we have a lot of international listeners too, in your area actually works. How do things get done? And if I don't know how things get done, if I don't know exactly what goes into election security, then I'm much more likely, for example, to criticize it or maybe not have as much faith in it. So um, help people learn how to be a good citizen. I think that that starts at a very early age. Right. And every kid has to learn it. So, you know, including the kids in abysmal situations. Right. So um, also, are they learning to have disagreement in ways that aren't destructive? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, if they and this happens at these like T-ball games, if they. <laughs> 
hey, that's a bad call. And all of a sudden you got a fist fight between two dads over in the, like a bunch of numbskulls. Yeah. What kind of role model are you? Oh you my being gosh. At that moment? Right. And, and, and some of this stuff, let's just be honest. We don't know. We just kind of, well, I go to my job, you know, I'll do a drive by trolling on social media. I'll post a couple articles. I haven't read, watch some trash TV and go to bed. Well, when that's compounded, it creates a powder keg of ways in which societies can derail. Mm. You need to know how to conduct yourself. You know, well, I think this is false. Okay, well, let's examine some of the evidence. There are, and this is where Google dialectic will probably do something on, on it at some point, but there's gotta be ways in which you engage in healthy debate and disagreement and modeling that for your kids. And guess what? If you ever hope that your kids get married, you know, a lot of people want to get married. Well, you're going to have to learn to have disagreements that aren't destructives to keep that ship on the road, right? Or on the <laughs> ocean, so to speak. <laughs> keep that ship between the buoys. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think also teaching children how to deal with things when they see something going wrong, right? How to be a good uh, intervener, right? We talk about bystander intervention. Uh, if you see something going wrong, how do you get involved with that situation, you know? At my kids' school, they have, uh, and this is something that they do at a lot of schools. It's it's pretty cool. But they they have at recess, they have a special bench. It's called the buddy bench, right? And if you if you're, if you're like feeling like you don't have somebody to play with you, you go sit on the buddy bench, and then it's 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 everybody's job. You're told, hey, go you go over and get the kid on the buddy bench and bring him into your game. Like that's kind of cool, right? And yeah, I think that that's super a, cool. Yeah, and I think that those types of ideas are really helpful, and um, you know how to go against the grain, right? That's the fundamental piece of leadership is oftentimes being deviant from what the group is doing. Um, being, having the moral courage to say, okay, bad idea. No, this isn't what we should be doing. This is not what we should be talking about. This is wrong. Yeah. And, and th you see this in the anti-bullying um, stuff that's coming out. And we see bullying all the time in the workplace and other stuff. When you see somebody getting bullied, hey, stop being a bully. Nobody mm -hmm. likes bullies. <laughs> you know, th these are kinds of things. Modeling that for children is good, but that means also doing it for yourself. Right, right. And then I think just helping your children or the children learn how to decide, you know, what what makes a good friend, right? How do I learn who I can trust and not trust um, so that I can make good decisions around the people that I surround myself with? Um, that's all part, I think, of strengthening these informal institutions that then become the foundations for what we do together in society. Yeah, absolutely. And and for kids, it, you know, it's important they pick somebody they can trust. You know, a lot of Aesop's fables, a lot of mm -hmm. these early stuff, you know, I think of the um, scorpion that stings the turtle while it's crying. Well, why would you sting? Now we're both going to die. It's in my nature, right? There's these ideas that we teach kids about trust. And, but when we're adults, there's ideas who's worthy of trust and friendship, but there's a second piece that we also create norms that behaviors that lack trust, that don't mm -hmm. build friendships and collaborative alliance become socially unacceptable and that there's pressure to conform to those kinds of norms. Now, yeah. kid, kids need to just pick and choose, but adults, we have an extra step to curate more trust and more friendship in the world around us. Yeah. And, you know, part of this is about determining and helping people, you know, think about themselves in different ways. And as you're talking about that, I was thinking about, and I was reminded of uh, some really good stuff from 
Philip Zimbardo. So Philip Zimbardo, you know, people are some of our listeners may be like, oh, I know who that is. He he was the guy who did the Stanford prison experiments um, back in the day, which, you know, from a, I don't know if they pass ethics scrutiny. Well, definitely scrutiny don't pass today. ethics scrutiny. And they, <laughs> and they in many ways don't really pass um, some methodological scrutiny. So but that aside, that whole thing aside, he uh, he has some really interesting things to say. Um, you know, about, and, and a lot of his research is about how good people do bad things or why that happens. And I think there's some interesting ideas there. Um, but then he has kind of flips that on its head and says, well, you know, maybe we should also be thinking about ourselves in terms of um, being heroes in waiting, right? That the, uh, the antidote to evil in the world is through acts of heroism in which we go against the popular opinion we do something extraordinary. We don't, we don't let ourselves be bystanders. And you know, one of the things that he was working on—I don't know if he's still doing it. It was just kind of interesting, but just was you know helping to create stories and um, examples that you could talk about with with children. You know, and you know, the, you guys, you're talking about these different uh, fables and stuff. Like you've probably heard the one, uh, the the story of the the little the little hero of Holland. You ever hear that one? Like the kid who puts his finger in the dike and yeah. keeps all of the water from oh, coming man. in, right? Uh, and it's and been he, years, but yeah, of course. Yeah, and he stays there overnight because he knows that if he takes his finger out of this uh, this this wall that's holding all the water back, that 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 the the town could be ruined, right? Um, and so I think instilling that in our in our children and, and in ourselves, it's never too late, is a really great way in which we can together strengthen our institutions and our society. Man, you, you can't conclude it better than that, Ben. So why don't you bring us home? All right. So today on the podcast, we talked about how we don't fall apart. Uh, we talked about why it might feel like the world is falling apart. We talked about what institutions are and why they matter. And then we added some practical tips in terms of how we can strengthen human institutions and move forward with hope. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.